Well, good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville. How are we doing this morning? Good. If you wouldn't mind, would you stand? Let's sing together this morning. faithfulness this morning so sing these words father of kindness you have poured out grace you brought me out of darkness you have filled me with peace giver of mercy you're my help in time of need lord i can't help Let's sing. Sing it out. Faithful. Faithful you are.
y'all grab a seat. Good morning, fellowship. Hey, I think the past four times I've gotten up here to do the announcements, I've made a mistake on either saying the wrong date or time for whatever I'm talking about. So they put all the information on the slides here. So this is going to be my mistake-free announcement Sunday. All right? Woo! Did I just set myself up to make a big mistake? All right. First thing is that we have a men's Bible study is starting again this Wednesday, right? Yes! Uh, This Wednesday, it's going to be over in the FSM room, 6.30 to 7.30. We'll be going through the book of 1 Timothy. I'm excited. I'm going to be coming and teaching one of those sessions, so really, really excited about that. Uh, Two other things that we'll be offering, um, and first of all, I want, want to ask you this, and this is a part of almost every wedding that I officiate, is what is the true purpose of marriage? It comes out of Ephesians 5, and it's this, the love that we have for each other, especially the husband to the wife, is to model to the world Christ's love for the church. I want to say that again. The true purpose of marriage is that we are supposed to be a witness. We are supposed to be a model to the world, showing the world Christ's love for the church. And so we want to be a church family that does that and helps people do that. So there's two, two things that we offer that we, we help in that great purpose. One is the merge class. So if you're dating somebody seriously or engaged, we just really encourage you to sign up and be a part of merge. It's going to start February 19th through April 2nd, and I'll be here on this campus. And then the other thing is, if you just kind of feel like, ah, I don't know if our marriage is doing that. We have another class called Reengage, and that's going to be at our Rogers campus. So we really encourage you, uh, if you kind of find yourself in one of those areas of life, um, we just want, as a church body, we just want to help out and just go, man, let's be a model to the world, and let's show the world, through our marriages, through our families, Christ's love for the church. Hey, um, this past October, I got to do something that was a a huge blessing for me. Uh, A couple from our church invited me to go along with them on an exploratory trip over to the Middle East in the Gulf region uh, because they're thinking and praying about moving there. And so I wanted to introduce you to this couple, Zach and Emily. Would y'all come on up with their kids, Shiloh and Titus? And after this trip and after exploring a a couple of different countries, you have made a decision to go over there. Um, It is a place where not allowed to specifically say what country it is. And and matter of fact, I'm trying not to say their last name uh, as well either, just for security reasons. But Zach, could you tell us a little bit uh, about this area of the world? Yeah, so we'll be moving really right into the heart of Islam in the Middle East. And traditionally, this has been a really difficult place to advance the gospel uh, for, for many, many years. And when we were there about three months ago, Pope and I actually had the opportunity to meet with a missionary who's currently there. Um, And he said that that he believes there's only 50 Christians in the entire country of over 5 million people. Um, And and he said there's no churches for local believers um, because it's really difficult for them to to meet together. And so, um, yeah, it's it's an area of the world that they're also pretty quick to kick missionaries out. And so we'll be looking to establish legitimate structures for us and for our team for us to be able to stay in country and not, not get kicked out. Yeah, and so, wow. So what is ministry going to look like there? What do you 
hope to see happen. Yeah, so our desire um, is to, to see people follow Jesus in this area of the world and also make disciples within their cultural context. Um, our desire is not to create American disciples um, th- who have to completely abandon their culture. Um, our desire is that we could make disciples who could remain in the context of their culture um, and make disciples uh, of their own. And so in order to do that, um, we're going to be spending a lot of time learning language and learning culture when we first move there. Um, another thing we're really excited about um, is to be able to pave the way for others to, to enter into this region. Um, we, we previously served in, in East Asia, and when we moved to East Asia, there were those within our organization who had pioneered and labored um, for over 30 years for us to be able to show up. And so when we arrived in East Asia, it was a pretty seamless transition um, because we were able to, to get legitimate visas and, and start learning um, the language and different things like that. And so, um, yeah, we're, we're excited, and, and we've committed as a family to move to the Middle East for the foreseeable future um, so that we could really uh, help pioneer the way for others to follow. Um, and so one of our goals is, is for us um, to be a hub where, where leaders can come and be trained, um, learn ministry, learn language, and then be sent out as healthy staff to start ministries throughout the Middle East. That's incredible. And Emily, got a question for you. Obviously, it's just not you and Zach uh, going to serve over there. You're taking your whole family. Can you tell us some of the challenges and highs, lows, what it's like to raise a family overseas? Yeah, so basically how I explain it is that our life overseas so far, um, I'm going to set him down, (laughs) outside of carrying a two-year-old all the time, is um, that our lows are really really low, but our highs are really high. And so for our lows, kind of normal daily tasks, things like grocery shopping or even big things like buying a car, getting Wi-Fi can be really exhausting really easily. (laughs) Um, Not to mention um, even just the 14-hour flight with two small kids can be a little hard for me um, just just to get there. Uh, We're also gonna start homeschool um, with our oldest, Shiloh, as soon as we start, and that's a new thing for me, so that's exciting, but a little daunting. So any homeschool moms, come find me, please, I need help. (laughs) Um, But our highs are really high, like I said, and so um, life overseas is really fun, it's really adventurous and exciting, Um, and our family gets a front row seat to see what God is doing amongst unreached people. Um, And so we love that our family of four um, gets a lot of sweet opportunities to grow and to just trust God. Yeah, that's incredible. So Zach, when do y'all plan on launching, leaving out there, and, and what are you doing until then? Yeah, so we plan on moving at the beginning of June, which is a little less than five months from now. Um, and currently, we're actually staying up at the village, up at Fellowship Rogers, which has been a huge blessing. Um, and, and until we move, uh, we've been tasked to, to raise up uh, a team of financial partners uh, because we have to raise 100% of our finances, both for life and ministry over there. And so we're asking people to partner with us um, to help get the gospel over there. We're also uh, raising up laborers to go with us to the Middle East while also just figuring out logistics um, of how to set up life and ministry there. Man, can we give them a hand? Man. Hey, we're going to pray for them, and we just want to introduce them to the body. They, they would never say this, but they're an inspiration to me. I think they're an inspiration to others, and we'd just love for y'all to get to know them. So uh, if you want to get to know them, hear more about their story, just reach out to me, and I'll help connect you uh, with them. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you so much for Zach and Emily, Shiloh, Titus. Dear Lord, they are are making sacrifices in order to take 
the beautiful message of the gospel to a place where very, very few know about you. And so God, we just pray as a church family that we will just support them well, that we will send them well, but God, that you take care of all their needs. And God, through them, may people who've never heard the name of Jesus come to know you. And it's your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Well, good morning again. Uh, my name is Garland, and it's, uh, it's a privilege to get to sing with you all this morning and to celebrate the goodness of our God. Uh, one final uh, announcement, uh, just kind of while we're in announcement time here. If you are a, uh, a creative in any way, you worship the Lord through your creativity, be that uh, writing songs or singing or poetry or photography or graphic design, whatever that looks like. Burton said last week, surprise him. Uh, well, you're gonna, we're going to have a, uh, uh, just a gathering of, of those people here in a few weeks. You can hit the QR code uh, right there on the screen. Come talk to Ryan Burton uh, after the service. He'd love to get you plugged in that night. But do register because they'll need to know how much food uh, they need. So if you, if, if you heard that announcement, you're like, creative, that's me, then get there that night. We'd love to, uh, to have a meal and just see how we can uh, worship the Lord together uh, as a church. And, um, this morning, as we continue, if you weren't here last week, we opened up a, a, a new series where we're going to study uh, the book of Esther and Daniel uh, over these next few months here in uh, Sunday morning here at Fellowship Fayetteville, and we're really excited to do so. We're going to get to see the faithfulness of God to his promises, even when sometimes it's hard to see, and so um, just celebrating his goodness and celebrating um, his mercy and grace, and uh, C.S. Lewis has this, this quote that he says, um, whenever we speak about God and what he's done, and, and who he is, and how he's rescued us and delivered us, he says our face should light up. And I would say that same thing, whenever we sing about God, our, our face should light up. So we're gonna, we're gonna sing a song, and it's my hope that our faces would just kind of light up to thinking of the, the hope that we have in our kings. Here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna stand us all up in a minute. And you might notice your face, you know, smiling or something. You might even, your feet might want to move, and I want you to embrace that, okay? Please embrace that as best as you can. I'm not going to ask you to clap because most of us can't do that on, on tempo, so let's not try that, but would, can we, if you're a Jesus follower in the room and he's delivered you and he's rescued you, then let's celebrate him and his goodness and his mercy to us, telling our story publicly as we sing it. So would you stand with me and let's, together, let's sing. Well, I've been held by the Savior And I've felt fire from above And I've been down to the river Oh, I ain't the same The prodigal's return Sing it out, all my hope and all my hope is in Jesus. Thank God my yesterday is gone. And all my sins are forgiven. And I've been washed by the blood. Just think about your story. I'm no stranger to prison And I've worn shackles and chains 
But I've been freed and forgiven oh, I'm not going back I'll never be the same That's why I'm singing Oh, my hope is in Jesus Well, thank God my yesterday ourselves the goodness of the gospel, what Jesus has done in rescuing us, delivering us from our sin, from our brokenness. So let's confess together. Heavenly Father, have mercy on us. We have not loved you as you deserve. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. We have not obeyed you as we should. Lord, forgive us our sin. We are in need of a Savior. The story doesn't end there. Church, believe the good news. Jesus died for us. Jesus rose for us. Jesus intercedes for us. In him, we are a new creation. In him, we have forgiveness of sin. In him, we have a Savior. To God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. that story in these words. So think about these words as we sing. Of life. 
together we get to celebrate what God has done in our lives in our church in this world by his goodness and his grace we get to celebrate that together the ordinance of baptism so would you grab a seat let's celebrate together fellowship uh, I think every baptism that we have is is really special and Here's another one. I want to introduce you to Yejin. And Yejin is an international student from South Korea who came here to study at the University of Arkansas. And about a year ago, she met Hallie, uh, who's on staff with us, but is also involved in our international ministry. And uh, they developed a, a really strong relationship. And even though Yejin grew up uh, in, a, in a Christian family, uh, having a personal relationship with Christ was something that she never made her own. Uh, but through the relationships that she formed here and something that I think Hallie just really modeled for her well, she discovered something that she never experienced before, and that was how the church is a family and how the family loves and takes care of each other. And she's been a part of our family uh, for the past year. And matter of fact, uh, last Sunday, it was when some kids were getting baptized in this service that Hallie, or Yejin was sitting out there and told Hallie, she's like, that's something that, that I need to do. So it's the love that we have for each other in this community that drew her into a relationship with Christ. Uh, and her name is Yejin, and that actually means that Jesus is the truth. So Yejin... Is it your testimony that you believe that Jesus is the truth and he is now Lord of your life? She said yes, very quietly, but she said yes. So Yejin, it is my honor 
And by the way, we're sad. Even though we celebrate this, she's going to be moving back to South Korea this Tuesday. So, but she wanted to do this here with her family. So it is my honor to baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in the newness of life. From Esther 1 through 4. Xerxes was the king of the Medes and the Persians, ruling from his citadel in Susa. While he was throwing a banquet for all of the people, he summoned his queen Vashti so that she could show off her beauty. But Vashti refused to come. The king burned with anger, and his officials recommended that Vashti be removed as queen, and a search be made for beautiful young women to be brought into the king's harem. This advice appealed to Xerxes, and he gave the order. Living there in Susa at the time all this happened was a Jew named Mordecai. He had raised his cousin, Esther, who had no mother or father. Esther was very beautiful. When the king's order to bring women into the harem was proclaimed, Esther was one of the women taken in. Xerxes was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and so Vashti's crown was placed on Esther's head, and a banquet was given in her honor. Esther, following the advice of Mordecai, did not reveal that she was a Jew. One day, Mordecai overheard two of Xerxes' attendants plotting to assassinate him. Mordecai got word of the plot to Esther, who reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. When an investigation revealed the plot, the two officials were executed. After these events, Xerxes honored not Mordecai, but Haman, who was a descendant of Israel's ancient enemy. All the royal officials knelt down to Haman, but Mordecai refused to kneel down and pay him honor. When Haman saw this, he was so enraged that he decided he wouldn't just kill Mordecai, he would wipe out all of the Jews throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Haman convinced Xerxes to issue a decree that the Jews should be killed on a single day. And then the king and Haman sat down to drinks as the city was thrown into turmoil. When Mordecai heard about this decree, he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. And when Esther heard this, she sent her attendant to find out what the problem was. Mordecai passed along to Esther the news about the edict for the killing of the Jews. Esther, Mordecai told her, you must go in before the king and plead for your people. Esther replied that no one was allowed to approach the king without being summoned. If she approached the king uninvited, she would be put to death unless the king extended his gold scepter to spare her life. Mordecai replied to Esther, do not think that just because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family's family will perish. And who knows that you've come to your royal position for a time such as this. And then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Thank you, Antha. Man, what a story. I don't know about y'all, but I felt myself being drawn in 
to that story as she was reading it for us. I'm drawn in by these characters. I'm drawn in by this ridiculous King Xerxes. Here's a guy who rules over the largest empire the world has ever seen to that point, and yet his own wife defies him. His underlings manipulate him. A couple of his officials want to kill him. And eventually, of course, he's tricked into this ridiculous edict. I'm drawn in by the contrast between ridiculous Xerxes and powerful, incredible Esther, this orphan girl, this beautiful girl, a member of a hated minority who who grows up in a foreign land. I'm drawn in by Mordecai, her cousin and adoptive father. If you know me, you know I'm a sucker for an adoption story. I'm drawn in by his care for her, his love for her, how he does everything he can to do right by her. And then, of course, there's Haman, this conniving villain whose injured pride compels him to order a genocide. All of these characters, they're weaving together this story, this story that was first passed down orally and then eventually was written down in the form we have it today for more than 2,000 years. My name's Michael. I serve on the community team here at Fellowship Fayetteville, and I'm excited to be with you for the second of our four-week series in Esther. And just what we've talked about already, just reviewing those first three chapters and pressing into chapter four today, I've got some questions. Do y'all have some questions when you come to this text? I need some help with this. You know what I need? I need a book. (laughs) And guess what? Our staff has prepared one for you. We have a book that's gonna guide us through Esther all the way through Daniel. It'll take you all the way to Easter. That's a pretty good investment for $10. It's available at the info booth. Let me tell you, if that $10 is a hardship for you, someone's already bought you a book. So you just go tell them, and they'll give you a book. Let me tell you what you're gonna find in there. You're gonna find an introduction each week that's gonna help you frame what you're gonna read. Then you're gonna find daily readings that have some questions to prompt you as you read, some things to look for. It's guided reading. You're gonna find a conclusion to each week's study. You're gonna find discussion questions, things to reflect upon. I've been using it, and it's very helpful as we unpack these Old Testament books together. But personally, I need more than a book. What I need is people. I need some people to talk about this with, to process it with. What I need is a community group. And we have a community group for you. Let me tell y'all, my community group met for the first time Thursday. We talked about these first four chapters, and it was incredible. When everybody left, Lee and I were like, that was so great. Just talking about the passage together. If you're not in a group, We would love to help you find one. I can virtually guarantee that we can find a group that'll work for you. You can hit this QR code on the screen with your phone. It'll take you to a form or just go by the community booth. We would love to help you get connected with some other people for these next few weeks as we engage these incredible books together. Well, this morning we're looking at a pivotal chapter in the narrative. Chapter four, if you've got your Bible or your digital device, I wanna encourage you, go ahead and pull up Esther chapter four. If you're using your paper Bible, It's kind of hard to find. Esther's tucked in there. If you open to Psalms, go backwards toward the front of your Bible, you'll hit Job. The next book is Esther. Part of what makes it hard to find is it's not where we would expect it to be chronologically. Because in the history of the Old Testament, 
The events of the book of Esther occur almost at the end of that historic period, sometime during the reign of Xerxes. That would have been in the 5th century B.C. So we're talking like in the 450s or so B.C. The translation you have open in front of you might call Xerxes Ahasuerus. Harder to say. That's why I'm sticking with Xerxes. It's the same guy, okay? That's his Aramaic name. Xerxes is his Greek name. We're gonna call him Xerxes in here. So all these events in Esther are taking place during Israel's exile. Garland did a great job last week just putting us in the historical context. If you missed last week, I wanna encourage you, go listen to that podcast. What Garland told us was that Israel's southern kingdom, Judah, went into exile in 586 B.C. And so the Babylonians carried a lot of Jewish citizens out of Judah and into the Babylonian Empire. By the time of the events of Esther, the Persians have taken over from Babylon. So now it's the Persian Empire. And in Esther chapter 2, verse 5, we see that Mordecai is actually in the third generation that's come along since the exile. The one taken into exile was his great-grandfather, Kish. What a great name for a grandpa. Wouldn't you want to go to Grandpa Kish's house? Sounds like a place you could learn to drive a tractor. So Mordecai probably was born and lived his whole life in Persia. He and Esther both had probably never even been to Israel. They've lived their whole life as exiles, as foreigners in a foreign land, even though it's the only land they've ever known. And because they're exiles, they have to stick together. As I mentioned, Mordecai raised Esther. We don't know what happened to her mom and dad, but Mordecai was, in effect, her adoptive father. And so he raised Esther, and she grew up to be this beautiful young woman, a young woman who's going to catch the eye of the king's officials when they're looking to fill the harem. When Queen Vashti is pushed aside and these officials tell King Xerxes, you need to just gather up a bunch of young women, Esther is one of the ones who gets swept up. And as Garland correctly said last week, today we would call this sex trafficking. But in that day, they had no rights. These, these exiles, these foreigners in a foreign land, they had no one to appeal to. The king and his officials could do whatever they wanted. And so Esther is taken away from her family and forced to serve this ridiculous king. Now, as that's happening, Mordecai gets wind of this assassination plot. These two officials plan to kill Xerxes, and he passes that along to Esther, who passes it along to the king. And Mordecai gets credit for foiling this plot. But as we continue to read, we find Xerxes honoring not Mordecai, but Haman. Now, if you haven't read ahead, what you're going to see in the next few weeks is that Haman's a real weasel. You're going to hate this guy before we're done with Esther. But he's got Xerxes fooled. And so he gets Xerxes to elevate him and to order everyone to bow down to this guy Haman. But there's one guy who's not going to bow down to Haman, and that's Mordecai. I don't know Mordecai's reasoning. Maybe it's that he's a Jew, and so he doesn't bow down to pagan officials. 
I think there's a chance that he just thinks Haman's a clown and he's not gonna honor him. But either way, Haman uses Mordecai's lack of respect to do what he really wants to do, which is destroy the Jews. And I think that because our author gives us this key phrase. He calls him an Agagite. That means he was descended from this ancient enemy of Israel named King Agag. He was an Amalekite. Now, whether he was a literal, physical descendant of Agag or whether this is symbolic, I don't know. This is 600 years after Agag. I think it's possible that our author is using that the way today we might say, this guy's the next bin Laden. We would know exactly what that meant, right? Even if he wasn't descended from him. Or maybe he is an actual physical descendant. But either way, it tells us that Haman hates the Jews. He hates the people of Israel. He hates them so much that he's going to trick Xerxes into issuing a decree, a decree to destroy kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day. Today, we call this genocide. And today, we call this kind of hatred for the Jewish people anti-Semitism. And if you've been paying attention to the news at all lately, you know that anti-Semitism is still very much alive and well. We've seen high-profile celebrities, internet influencers, politicians make headlines in recent weeks with anti-Semitic comments and actions. So I wanted us to take a moment this morning and just think about how should we respond to that as followers of Jesus? And at the top level, it's really pretty simple. Jesus said, love God and love people. We call it the great commandment. And so to hate someone is unchristian. And as we've said in here before, to hate or oppress anyone because of their race, their religion, their ethnicity, it's a sin, plain and simple. And when it comes to anti-Semitism, sometimes we say, well, Jesus was Jewish, which is true, But I would actually prefer for us to say Jesus is Jewish because Jesus is very much alive. Jesus was, is, and always will be fully God and fully man. And that means that he is and always will be Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee. He is and always will be Jewish. That's why he could bring us as Gentiles into what had previously been a Jewish story. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians, the last book that we all studied together in here? He said Jesus has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. And so, as followers of Jesus, we need to be people who speak up, speak out. When we see and hear anti-Semitism, when we see and hear people who hate the Jews, who hate Israel, the Hamans of the world were opposed to God back then, and they're still around today. 
But Mordecai's not wondering about it. He understands the seriousness of the decree. He tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. It's an ancient way to show extreme grief and mourning. And Esther sends her helper out to find out what's going on. And Mordecai sends back word to her about exactly what's unfolding. And in Esther 4.8, for the first time, he directly tells Esther what to do. It's the first time in the book that's happened. He told this messenger to instruct her to go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Now, at first glance, that seems pretty easy, right? Esther, you're the queen. He's the king. Just pop in there while he's eating his cornflakes and tell him, hey, this is a, this is a big mistake. Tell him, I'm actually one of these Jewish people. You don't want to wipe us all out. But Esther quickly reminds Mordecai, it's not that simple. Look at verse 11. She says, all the king's officials and people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they should be put to death unless the king extends the golden scepter to them and spares their lives. And then she adds this, but 30 days have passed since I was called to go into the king. Man, these rules are harsh. Somebody walks into the king unbidden, risks being executed. And so this is extremely risky for Esther. Not only is she not allowed to just pop in, but it's been over a month since she's heard anything from Xerxes. This mercurial king who goes from one thing to the next, it seems like maybe he's kind of cooled on her a little bit. Now, before we press on into the story in chapter four, this is a chance for us to just pull back and think about Esther for a minute. As we said, she's grown up without her mother and father. She's raised by her cousins. As a young woman, she's been ripped from her family and sent to this palace. She has no control over her own life. She's never allowed to make her own decisions. She's forced to do these beauty treatments. She's forced to be in this relationship with Xerxes where she's treated more like a toy than a person. She can't leave the palace. She can't go and do as she pleases. And now her cousin, the man who's effectively her adoptive father, is asking her to risk everything to literally put her life on the line, to risk execution on the spot to expose herself to the king as a member of this hated minority. For what? For people she's never met who live in places she'll probably never see. To put it lightly, it's a big ask. So what do you think Esther's temptation is here? It's the same as it would be for you or for me. Temptation is to do nothing. Now, I'm reading between the lines here. I'm imagining what Esther might be thinking, but I know what I'd be thinking. I'm not walking in there under penalty of death. I'm not speaking up for an unpopular opinion. I'm not risking the stability and safety that I have finally found 
in my life. I wonder if she's thinking, Mordecai, do you have any idea what I've been through to get to where I am today, and now you want me to risk it all? For what? And this is one of those places that the text invites us to just consider how Esther's story and our story overlap. Because I guarantee you, every single one of us, including me, have been tempted at times to do nothing. I mean, think about it. What if your job was on the line? What if something was going on at work? It's a moral issue. It's a biblical issue. You feel compelled by your faith in Christ to speak up. But you know if you walk in there and confront your boss or bring up this issue to your boss, she might just fire you on the spot. What if the last person who spoke up, was last seen cleaning out their desk. It'd be a lot easier to just not do it. Or maybe you feel the Spirit pressing you to share your faith with a friend. But you think to yourself, what if it damages our relationship? What if it makes things weird between us? What if I stop getting getting invited to social gatherings or networking opportunities because I've exposed myself as a follower of Jesus. And it's tempting to just do nothing. The list goes on and on. It's almost always easier to do nothing. It's easier not to open your home and lead a community group. It's easier not to sacrificially give to keep global workers on the field. It's easier to not give up your Saturday morning to go participate in a service project. We're always tempted to do nothing. And that's why we need to carefully consider Mordecai's response. Because in it, we don't just see his theology, we actually see how he views the world. Look with me at verse 13. Mordecai sends the messenger back to Esther and says, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. It's a pretty strong response. Esther, don't think that just because you're in the palace, you alone will escape. Don't think to yourself, this will affect others, but surely not me. And again, aren't we all tempted to do that sometimes? I bet almost all of us watch the news and we think to ourselves, that's bad for them, but it won't affect me. We're always asking that, aren't we? What does this mean for me? What does this mean for me? We see bad things happening and we think, yeah, but I'm safe. My investments are protected. My health is good. My job's secure. My neighborhood is safe. These things won't come to my door. And Mordecai says to Esther, and I think by extension to us, Don't think you'll be safe because of your position. And it's in the next slide, or the next statement, I mean, that we see Mordecai's faith. If you remain silent at this time, 
Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. Now, I know we keep saying this in this study, but it's so true. We have to read between the lines a little bit here. The way Esther's presented invites us to read between the lines because Mordecai, Mordecai doesn't say, Yahweh, the God of Israel, will save us. He says it simply, deliverance will arise. But we have to infer, why does he believe that? Because he believes in Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. He believes he'll keep his promises. If Esther doesn't act, Mordecai is confident that he will save his people by some other means. Did you catch how he phrased it? He said, Esther and her father's family will perish. Think about how those words would land on the heart of an orphan. Esther, you'll be the end of the line. Esther, your father's legacy will be snuffed out. I think Mordecai chose those words carefully because he knew how Esther would feel when she heard that. And of course, we all love his last statement. I bet most of the women in here at some point have been in a study called Esther for such a time as this. I love the statement too. I love it that he says, and who knows, but that you have come into your royal position for such a time as this. Who knows? Who knows what God is up to? I kind of camped out on that in my study, and I'm going to confess to y'all. I started thinking about this who knows theology, and I kind of went down the rabbit trail. So go with me for just a minute. I found some other examples of who knows theology in the Old Testament. David praying over his infant son who's sick. Who knows? The Lord, Yahweh, may be gracious to me and let the child live. Over in Joel, the prophet delivering a warning of God's coming judgment. Who knows? God might turn and relent. And of course, you remember Jonah. We were studying that this time last year. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger. You know who says that in Jonah? The king of Nineveh. The pagan king who's heard God's warning of impending judgment, and he says, who knows? Maybe if we repent, he'll relent. In each case, someone is saying, let's act, and then who knows what God might do? And this is a place that I personally have felt really challenged in this study. Am I willing to say, I'm going to act in obedience? Who knows how God might respond. Who knows what might happen if I share my faith with my friend? Who knows what God might do if I open my home and invite some people in to have a community group? Who knows what God might do if I tell my child, yes, you can go on that FSM mission trip that seems like it could be dangerous? Who knows how my small act of obedience might be used by God. Mordecai says, who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. 
And with that short statement, he's reflecting on everything that's happened in the story. Vashti just happens to defy Xerxes. Xerxes just happens to put her aside and bring in a bunch of young women. Esther just happens to be one of those young women. Xerxes just happens to be attracted to her more than all the others. Mordecai just happens to overhear an assassination plot. And now Esther just happens to be in exactly the right place at exactly the right time. Or as Mordecai says it, for such a time as this, this is the hidden hand of God at work through this whole story. All these things that have occurred, Mordecai seems to be asking, could they have been so that God could place you, Esther, at just the right time to step out boldly, to be courageous, to act? Well, the messenger returns with this to Esther and then comes back with her reply. Look at verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish... I perish. What a reply. Mordecai had to feel relieved because Esther's gonna try to stop the plot, but he also had to feel anxious because he knows good and well he may have just sent his adopted daughter to her death. But I want us to look at the maturity we see in Esther's words. Get everybody together to fast. Again, there's an implication and pray Fasting and prayer always go together. And by the way, this is free. I'm not gonna charge you extra for this. Every one of those who knows theology moments we looked at, fasting and prayer is involved in those as well. Esther says, I'm in, Mordecai. But I want my spiritual family, I want God's people to go before him, to go before me with fasting. I wanna be spiritually prepared And she says she'll do the same. And she says, and I'll go before the king. And if the outcome is that she dies, well, so be it. If I perish, I perish. And in this moment, in this moment right here, Esther's character in the narrative is transformed. See, up until now, she's been a passive character. She's gone where she was told. She's done as she was instructed. She's been virtually silent. And now she's gonna take control. We're gonna see Esther become the primary driver of the narrative going forward, but you have to come back next week for that. We're not gonna get there today. But I don't want us to leave this week's passage without pulling out a main idea, the big reason that we're studying this pivotal chapter, Esther 4, and it's this. For Mordecai and Esther, God God is sovereign and in control. So his people are called to courageously act in faith. Isn't this what we see in the story? Mordecai trusts God's promises are true. He trusts that God is sovereign, that he'll bring another deliverer. If Esther doesn't step up and act in faith, the deliverance will come from somewhere. And so we might ask ourselves, 
How can Mordecai be so sure? How can he know this is true? And I think there's a little note in the text that gives us some insight. It's a note we can miss if we're not reading very carefully. It's a little timestamp back in Esther 3.12. It says then, on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. This is to send out the decree to execute the Jews. Our writer is careful to tell us it's the 13th day of the first month. Why note this? Why include this specific date? Well, it's an important date on the Jewish calendar. If we look back at Leviticus chapter 23, verse 5, we see God commands the Lord, Yahweh's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. The edict to destroy the Jews in the Persian Empire was issued the day before Passover began. Passover, of course, is the festival that the Jews keep right up through today, remembering God's faithfulness, remembering how God delivered them from slavery in Egypt, how he brought them out, how he parted the Red Sea, how he delivered them to the land he promised. But for Mordecai and Esther, the Passover meal is gonna be replaced with a fast as they once again look to God to deliver them, this time not from slavery, but from death. And of course, we as followers of Jesus, we look back at a different Passover, the one that happened the night before he was crucified, the night that he revealed that the Passover from the very beginning had always pointed to him, to his perfect life, to his sacrificial death, to his victorious resurrection. See, God has already won the battle. Sin and death are defeated. We don't have to worry or wonder how this whole thing's gonna turn out. We already know. And so we're in the exact same position as Esther and Mordecai. God is sovereign and he's in control. And so Fellowship, Fellowship Fayetteville, as his people, we're called to courageously act in faith. Maybe God is calling you today to take that first step of faith by trusting him as your savior. It's as simple as believing and admitting to him that you need him. Or maybe you're here and you're a believer and God's calling you to make a decision or take a risk or simply make a change in your life that's gonna help you follow him more closely. I don't know what God's doing in your life, but my guess is that if you're here as a believer, the Holy Spirit is pressing something specific into your heart right now. And my encouragement to you is to trust him. Believe him. He's in control. He's already won. That allows us to step out in courage where he's calling us. And who knows what we might see him do next. Hey, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this story. Lord, thank you that these events of 2,000 plus years ago resonate today because we follow the same God who's faithful who's sovereign. Lord, help us, like Esther, be willing to fast and pray and then obey, regardless of the consequences, because we know that you have already won. Would y'all stand with us? Let's reflect on a 
God's goodness, his mercy, his sovereignty, his love for us, we can trust him. Reflect on that as we sing these words together. From the wilderness you brought me home again. Well, you haven't always been. You hold me up again. Well, you haven't always will. Well, you haven't always. We look to Him. You give hope. You haven't always will. You redeem.